The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Father, thank you for this privilege. Bless it, this time together for your glory, for your honor. Lord, for the conviction of our sin, for the strengthening of our souls, for just the health of our body as a church, Lord, for the the health of our relationships as we seek to spur one another on in in our faith. Give me clarity. Help me to, to think well and to communicate clearly and to point people towards the greatness of our God. Lord, your word is, is rich in wonder. Help us to, to see that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to introduce you to a, a family I've gotten to know a little bit over the last couple months. They're the Zeller family. They live in San Luis Obispo, California. Reed and Misty are the parents, and they have three children, Emma, Fred, who they call Fredo, and Sophie. And they have Charlie. They had Charlie. Two Februarys ago, so a little over a year ago, Charlie was stillborn at, uh, at 37 weeks. And we just had our first miscarriage as a, as a couple uh, earlier this year. And the, the pain of that opens the door just a little bit, I think, to understanding what the pain of, of having a stillborn child would be like. But um, all that to say that that, that would be an incredibly difficult circumstance. So that's a little over a year ago, and in the, in the year following, they then had two more miscarriages. In this most recent February, they discovered that there was black mold in their house, to which then they attributed the, the causes for the, the miscarriages and Charlie's death also. Um, so after discovering the black mold, they then had to completely move within a 24-hour time period. Completely. Box it up, and get out. So if, you, if you've ever moved, you know that that's not a 24-hour process, typically. They've had to sell or throw away the bulk of their possessions. After they moved, they then discovered that no, you, you can't actually keep the stuff that you had boxed up and thought you could keep. So they've had to sell or give away the bulk of their possessions, clothes, uh, letters, blankets, toys, you know, those, those loveys that their kids had, furniture. With the, the bills of moving and the bills of the hospital and those types of things, they've, they've spent pretty much all their money. They've all been effectively poisoned to one extent or another by the mold, yeah, the, the kids included. Um, Misty herself has had an ear infection for about eight months. She's had upper respiratory infection. Uh, her, her memory is, is spotty. Yeah, she was saying the other day that um, she was at Costco and just couldn't remember, she's 33, couldn't remember where her car was. And she wandered around the parking lot for so long that a, an employee finally came out and helped her. Um, you, you look like you need a little bit of help here. Uh, there's the possibility of cancer. Both Reed and Misty have uh, suspicious nodules in their, in their thyroids. Um, and this is, this is suffering, I think it's accurate to say. But suffering is a universal experience. Romans 5, James 1, it confirms that. Our lives uh, confirm that. If you live long enough, you're going to suffer. You're going to encounter hardship. There's no escaping it. 
It can range in various extents, whether it's, you know, we, we got the stomach flu and it went through our family, or, or whether it's you, you flunk a test that you were hoping not to flunk, or you break a leg, uh, you might be rejected by friends and coworkers, you might lose a job, your house might burn down, and you might lose a family member at an undesirable and unpreferred and unexpected time. Suffering to one degree or another is a universal experience, and Scripture acknowledges this. It's no surprise. But some crucial questions are, where does suffering come from, and how do I deal with this? And this is where many people differ. See, blame for that suffering can be put on a variety of things. You can blame the external circumstances around you. You can blame other people around you. Oh, it's their fault. You can blame your, up, blame your upbringing. You can blame the devil. You can blame sin. You can blame God. And the, the, the ways that people deal with it are, are, are diverse also. You can go to therapy. You can get counseling. You can take meds. Some people just turn to exercise. Some people turn to booze or drugs. Some people turn to just sheer self-will and determination. I will get through this suffering. Some people turn to prayer or, or even prayer-like rituals. Some people turn to friends. Some people turn to Scripture. I believe that the Bible tells us that God is the one to bring suffering into our lives. Suffering and hardship come from the Lord. Since He is the one who brings those things into our lives, we can then know how to appropriately endure the hardships. Job 2, verse 10 says, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Isaiah 45, verse 7 says, I bring, this is the Lord speaking, I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Lamentations 3.38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? So the question is, how can God be completely sovereign and yet, as some people would say, not be sovereign over suffering and hardship? And, and hypothetically, if God weren't sovereign over this suffering and the hardship, then how can we trust Him to really be sovereign over the other things? So enduring of suffering becomes a theological issue. It's not just a circumstance to get with, to get, to get through, but it, it's a theological issue. After all, we're, we're dealing with God, what we know about God, how he relates to us. And so our suffering is theological, and this has been the truth for millennia. And in the midst of this seeming struggle between theology and suffering, the Lord is kind and He speaks to us through the Word. He gives us examples through the Word. We're going to look in the Old Testament, and contrary to what some people say, it is relevant, it is meaningful, and it is pertinent. And we're going to see that this morning. The Lord knows that our souls get burdened down by the suffering that we encounter in our lives. He knows that. But He's very kind to give us then examples for how to effectively and appropriately deal with those in His Word. So turn, if you will, to Lamentations 3, verses 19 to 24. And I'm going to read those verses for us now. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. It's a well-known passage, but hopefully as, as we study it and talk about it, it'll bring out different nuances that deepen your understanding 
and the implications of it also. Starting in verse 19, it says, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. So in terms of context of this passage, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered and carried off by Assyria in the 700 B.C. area. Southern kingdom of Judah, after enduring ups and downs for years after that, was finally overcome by Babylon and carried off into exile starting in 586 B.C. And in the course of that, Jerusalem specifically was ransacked. The palace destroyed, the temple looted and destroyed. Things are just in smoke. Everything is torn down. See, when a, when a nation came in and conquered another, specifically a capital, they targeted the buildings that were associated with the defeated nation's king and their god as a statement, saying, we've beaten your king and we've beaten your god. And so it's rubble. Jerusalem is rubble. And Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations, he overlooks the rubble and he pens what really is just a dirge. It's a eulogy. These are are Jeremiah's literary tears over the state of his city and his nation. They represented so much to him and the Jewish people, and yet now it's just destroyed. We're looking in the middle of this book, at the climax really, where we see how Jeremiah deals with the intense pain that he's suffering that we're going to talk about. And we can see that he deals with it in two ways. He assesses his ailment, and then having assessed it, he then administers the antidote. In terms of assessing the ailment, he, he first off, he sees reminders of the pain. Verse 19, he says, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. You look at that, remember. Who's he talking to? There's no real addressee at this point. It's that, it's that cry of, of anguish that we've all felt in our hearts and probably have even voiced at times. Just that help, that, that remember. Anybody see? It's a shotgun request that his suffering be known. And what is he looking for? For remembrance of his affliction, his wandering, his wormwood and bitterness. These are, these are the reminders of pain that Jeremiah thinks about here in Lamentations. The affliction. All right, so th- this is not, uh, I have a bunion on my foot, and it kind of gives me some discomfort, so I have to deal with that a little bit. This is, this is, this is an intensity of misery that is overwhelming and continuous and persistent. It's a trial of, of severe intensity. He talks about his wandering, literally his homelessness. Jeremiah has become a homeless man. His home is destroyed. His city is destroyed. His temp- the, the temple is destroyed. Everything is gone. Jeremiah has no, no place to, to sleep. His friends and his family have 
more than likely have been carried off. Then he says, remember my wormwood and my bitterness. These go together, the, the phrases, the wormwood was, they think, most likely a plant yielding these bitter oils. So if you got wormwood in, in water, and this is actually kind of used as punishment in some ways, uh, then, then you drink the water and your, your stomach twists up, you know, and your face contorts, and there's that, there's that pain, that gall that causes you just to react physically to the, to the bitterness of what you've just had. What I find interesting about this is he doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat his circumstances. You know, sometimes we go through hard times and we might be suffering, difficulty, and someone says, hey, how you doing? Oh, well, you know, it's been a rough week, but you know, I'm, I'm really good. It's, it's no biggie, you know, such and such, and we're, we're doing fine. No, we don't need anything. Um, there, there's a tendency to sugarcoat hardship and to pretend like, hey, life is great. But the reality is that suffering comes. The reality is that life is hard. And the reality is that there are trials and that those trials are brought to us by God. And so Jeremiah here, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat it or diminish it at all. He says, I am afflicted, I am homeless, and I have been made to drink bitterness that twists up my guts and causes my, my, my face and my personality and my reactions to just contort. And that's, that's his problem. That's his ailment. He's gone through some incredibly intense times. Intense suffering, intense hardship. He sees the result of his pain. It says, surely my soul remembers, and it's bowed down within me. All these hardships that he's remembering have, have caused his soul to, to cower, to crouch, just to be crushed, to be bent over because of the weight of the circumstances. Again, he, he's, not, he's not trying to gloss over and say, yeah, things have been hard, but you know what? Eh. No biggie. No, no, he's saying, yeah, things have been incredibly hard, and my soul is, is bowed down within me. It's not a posture of, of worship. This is not a posture of, of greeting or any of that sort of bowing. This is, this is like, like the snow when it comes and, you know, it starts to come and it, and it lands on the tree branch. And at first, at the beginning of the night, the tree branches are, are upright and they're, they're dealing with the snow. And then over the course of the night, the snow gathers and gathers and gathers. And eventually, what once was upright has now been borne down by the weight of the snow until it's just on the verge of snapping. If you had one more snowflake on that, the branch is going to break and come crashing to the ground. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. The circumstances that he's gone through, this suffering, have borne his soul down, caused it to just bow over because of the intensity of the hardship. But this is not just simple discouragement over the hardship of the circumstances. <clears throat> there is a particular intensity here because of the hopelessness that he feels because he understands who the director of his suffering is, or who the director of his suffering is, rather. A lot of us know verses 19 to 24. But have you ever gone back and read verses 1 to 18? Let's do that. Read verses 1 to 18 with me. 
I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell, like those who have been long dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. I have become a laughingstock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. You can, you can feel the growing weight of what bears his soul down until he says, my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. But you see that Jeremiah's theology is really, it's good. He understands the sovereignty of God. He knows who to attribute the source of his suffering to. The circumstances around him have not escaped his sovereign God, his covenant God, Yahweh, I am. Jeremiah believes in a sovereign God and is thus forced to conclude that the misery and the wandering and the wormwood and the bitterness are all given to him, brought to him by that sovereign God. See, a lot of the times our tendency, and especially the tendency of culture around us, is to think that God is caught unawares by suffering, to think that God, you know, almost like Baal when, when Elijah was addressing him, you know, God, God's asleep. Hey, if you just cry out a little louder, he'll, he'll wake up, and then he'll come and rescue you from the suffering and from the hardship. And whether we say it outright or whether we manifest that kind of an understanding by our actions and our words, a lot of the times that is our gut response. But Jeremiah doesn't try to wiggle around this conclusion. Not only is God fully present but he's also in complete control of the situation. The Zeller family, all those hardships, they went through a very similar thing and wrestled with this same tension mere weeks ago. So in case, in case anybody's tempted to think, oh, that's lamentations, that's thousands of years ago. Well, here, here's life now. Listen to, to what Misty Zeller wrote. She says, and, and where is God? I honestly don't know. I do know that he's still somewhere deep inside the whirlwind and the storm, but we feel deeply defeated and are struggling to believe that he really sees our endless catastrophic suffering. Ultimately, I know God made our bodies and ordained and numbered all eight of our lives. God provided the house. God sent the rain. God let the roof leak. God grew the mold. God led me to the right doctor who finally ordered the right test. God took us out of that death hole and finally brought us to a house that was safe. God gave, and God took away, and took away, and he gave. 
So I encourage us to let Jeremiah's example over 2,000 years ago instruct us. And let, let Misty Zeller's example just a couple of months ago instruct us also. In the midst of suffering, God is sovereign. God is in control. He brings the good and the ill. So, as Jeremiah wrestles with this knowledge that everything has been taken from him and his soul has been so borne down by these hardships that he's on the, on the verge of, of breaking, as he wrestles with that, what does he do? If he can't brush it off with his understanding, if he can't brush it off and say, well, this was all a mistake, God will come to his senses and he'll, he'll, he'll save me from this and he'll fix everything and he'll make it easy, if he can't say that, what will he say? How will he address his soul and the circumstances of his life? What do we say in those times when we think we can't go on anymore? Have you come to that point ever where you think, I just can't do this? This is too much. This is suffering like nobody else has experienced. God is outside of this. I can't handle this. This is all a mistake. God, surely you'll wake up and help me. Is that, is that how we how we say that? What do we say when our theology informs us that God knowingly and purposefully has brought us to what we can perceive as our lowest of lows? Well, hopefully that's what we'll see here as we learn to administer the same antidote that Jeremiah did. It's kind of a three-step process here in the sense of first he, he has purposeful meditation. He says, this I recall to mind. And that, that language actually isn't, isn't quite, not quite the, the, the gist of, of what he really does. He doesn't just call something back to mind. It's, it's stated in such a way, pretend this is his mind. He's taking this and he's putting it back in. No matter what things try to kick it out, I am going to put this back in. He says, this I put back into my mind. This, having left, I am now going to place where it was. He doesn't let his soul run away on him. He doesn't let his emotions run away. He says, no, 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 no. I have things to inform this situation. It sounds kind of like Romans 5. If you don't remember it, then look back a few verses next Sunday morning. But Romans 5, talking about knowing what do you feel? What do you think? What do you know? Jeremiah does what Pastor Rick has advocated as we've been talking about the gospel and the knowledge of our place in Christ. So hope is initiated by this purposeful meditation where just a few verses ago he says, my strength has perished and, perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Now the conclusion, after this I recall to my, my mind, therefore I have hope. Just like that. This purposeful meditation, though, is not, is, not, um, is not a ritual. It's not something that you can just kind of, you know, glance at something and, and, and bam, you're fixed and, and you walk away and, and you're good. There's a, there's a continual, intentional placing back in your mind what you know to be true, as we'll get to in a moment. But when he says, I, I, I recall to mind, a lot of the times I think we wish it was easier than it is. But it's constantly fighting, constantly 
placing, placing. Saying, no, I'm going to put this in. Oh, it, it got out. I'm going to put this back in. Constantly calling to mind what he says this is. What has he called to mind? What has he put back into his heart that breathed new hope into him? It's God's attributes. He starts to praise the Lord and remind himself to put back into his mind who God is. He literally places back into his core processor. So it's more even than just, even than just his awareness and his understanding. It's, it's his heart, his volition, his desire, his emotions. He is informing all of those things in the midst of this just beating down situation. This is who God is. This is your God. And his hope is strengthened by doing this with an attitude of praise. You see, God is both the source of the suffering and he's the hope in the suffering. And you can't, you can't divide the two. So what, what, does he, what does he ponder about the Lord? What does he call back to mind? What does he place into his awareness and his understanding? God's loving kindnesses. These loving kindnesses that indeed never cease. It's talking about the covenant love and loyalty. It's a word that's called chesed. Okay, and it's used all over and it has lots of nuances and, and things like that. But, but basically it's, it's the affection and attachment that God sets on someone. Okay, it's, uh, it speaks of, of family ties. It speaks of, of bonds, of, of intentionality and purpose. Okay? And this, this chesed that, that he talks about here indeed never ceases. I don't, some of you might hold a New King James or a King James, and it might say there that uh, through the Lord's loving kindnesses, uh, that, that word, we are not consumed. There's some lexical issues with that verse in terms of what, what the original minutia said, but the point really is the same, whether it says through the Lord's hesed we are not consumed or the Lord's hesed indeed never ceases. Because if you think about it, if the Lord's hesed had ceased, then they would have been consumed. And so their not being consumed is really... Um, a demonstration of it not having ceased anyway. But the focus, though, is on the loving kindness that God has set on his people, on Jeremiah, and, and Jeremiah understands how that works. He says, he says this, this hesed, this, this covenant, this affection, this loyalty between God and me doesn't end. And he calls that to mind, and he puts it back into his mind and therefore he has hope. He also speaks of God's compassions. This, this word for compassions is related to the Hebrew word for, for the womb. And so it, it connotes the idea of, of a mother's tenderness, tender feeling towards her child, the way that a mother cares and gives and sacrifices. And, and so another basis here for the hope is God's unfailing compassions, which are, which are here. We see they are new. His compassions never fail, rather. And then in verse 23, it says, they are new every morning. This, this newness isn't, it's not that um, they, they ran out. 
but it's just that they're, they're refreshed. They don't degrade. They don't deteriorate. They don't lessen in ability or impact or scope or anything like that. They're, they're brand new in scope and in impact and wholeness every time you, you have need of them, every time that God brings them to bear, every time that you call them to mind. You never have to worry about, does God really have enough chesed for me today? Does God have enough compassion for me and where I am today? You don't have to worry about that. And that's followed by the resulting exclamation of, great is your faithfulness. And of course, everybody now is singing in your head the hymn, right? And, that, and that, this is where it comes from. Okay? But, but what, is, what is faithfulness? Okay? And faithfulness here is really, it's a constancy. It's a reliability. See, there, there, is, there is a line that God has drawn, that God has expressed of who He is and how He deals with His people. And God is faithful to that. God is reliable. He's constant. He doesn't change. He has integrity. He has steadiness. You see, this whole situation reflected on God's character as it was known by Jeremiah. Even the suffering reflected God's faithfulness because God was acting according to his word. Look back to Deuteronomy 28. We need, to, we need to drive this point home that the suffering was not something outside of God's control and that the suffering actually even manifested and demonstrated God's character and his faithfulness, as Jeremiah exclaims. So Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 says, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And I'm just going to kind of skim through and, and summarize and pull some. Cursed shall be you in the city and in the country, Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. Cursed shall be you when you come in and when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with blight and mildew. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. Verse 27, the Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt, and with tumors, and with the scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will smite you with madness. Verse 30, you shall betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. You will plant a vineyard, but you won't use its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes. Verse 32, your sons and your daughters will be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. A people who you do not know will eat the produce up of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. Verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over to, over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. God was faithful. God was true. He had integrity 
to what he had said, to how he had revealed himself, and to what the ramifications of all those things would be. See, God's faithfulness in Jeremiah's mind is borne out by the fact of the suffering that he has endured because it manifests God's integrity. It manifests his constancy, his reliability. If God says such and such, such and such will be. And so again, Jeremiah, in the midst of suffering, is recalling what he knows of God. And kind of the flip side of what we just talked about as Jeremiah brings his hope back to mind is the understanding that just as God has been faithful to that, as Jeremiah himself even prophesied, God will be faithful to bring about restoration and to bring about a new covenant and to bring about a new relationship with God. And so as constant and faithful as God is to this, Jeremiah knows God will be faithful to that. But in the midst of the suffering, Jeremiah is recalling what he knows about God. In Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses, and he, and he says his name, and this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. So Jeremiah knew. Who is God? He's compassionate. And he's gracious. And he's slow to anger. And he's abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so the prophet sees God's covenant love and his compassion and his faithfulness in the suffering and he knows, even as he himself foretold, that, that that compassion and the faithfulness is going to manifest in the restoration as well. But see, we know things about God too. And so the question here is, in the midst of suffering, do we place those things that might have been driven out temporarily of our hearts and our minds by the suffering, do we take those things and do we place them, do we stuff them, do we force them back into our, our, our means of processing See, we know things about his covenant love and his compassion and his faithfulness and his care for us and his provision for us. We know that he loves us with an everlasting love. We know that all things will work together for our good. We know that he will discipline us in love as a father does his children. We know that he will work to sanctify us. We know that he will provide for our needs. We know that our souls are perfectly protected in his hand. We know that nothing happens to us outside of his will. We know that God is slow to anger and judgment, not wanting any to perish. We know that God's wrath toward our sins has been completely satisfied. We know that our great high priest can understand our every weakness. We know that if, he, if we pray, he hears us. We know that he won't give us more than we're able to endure. And we know that his grace is sufficient. That's a lot of knowledge. That's a lot of facts. That's a lot for God to be faithful to, to maintain that integrity to, to be steadfast in. And so Jeremiah's antidote was to purposefully meditate and then praise God for these things. It's a pattern we can follow. It's a pattern that the Zeller family has followed through this difficult and, and horrendous time. 
doesn't make it easy, but it gives you the right way to deal with it. This is what Misty Zeller said about this. She says, sometimes I feel his nearness and his presence, and sometimes I feel deeply abandoned and unprotected from pretty much everything. But regardless of my feelings, there are things promised to me. He is the God who picked the paths we would take. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's what she called the mind. He is the God who walked this very sand. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's what Misty called the mind. And regardless of what we can see and feel on any given day, he is the God who carries, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. She continues, I know this because if he wasn't, I would not have made it to this day. I have literally been picked up and carried through countless days. I have simply felt too weak and broken to even keep on walking. And through another scary week, I am banking on his promise that he is the God who carries. I love the honesty. There's no sugarcoating. There doesn't need to be sugarcoating. But there needs to be a truthfulness to how we understand it and then how we deal with the suffering and the hardships that we endure. That is so honoring to God. So we find, as did Jeremiah and the Zellers, that as we purposefully meditate, our hope is initiated. As we praise God and His character, our hope is strengthened. And finally, we find our hope is established and the peace that we find in our conclusion. Look at how Jeremiah ends this section. He says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope. Jeremiah has an established hope now. It is set. It is settled. It is restored. It's a result of the peace that comes from this communion with God. This is not a fleeting, desperate wish for sort of that maybe potential likely outcome. This is a strong assurance of a sure outcome. His inheritance is the Lord, and that cannot be shaken. See, Jeremiah talks about the Lord as the other people, others have, have talked about the, the spoils of war. This is, this is my share of the spoils. Well, this is what I'm receiving from my dad when he dies. This is my field. This is my portion of the inheritance. This is, this is my section of the land because I'm part of one of the 12 tribes and our land is over here and my allotment is this. But Jeremiah's portion at the end, which brings him hope, is none of these things. It's much like the tribe of Levi's portion was. They didn't get any, any land. They got Yahweh. And that's what Jeremiah recognizes also. The relationship with and knowledge of the very being of God is Jeremiah's inheritance. That's what he looks to. That's where his hope is, is established and sure. And so as unshakable as God's character is, so unshakable is Jeremiah's hope. As unshakable as God's character is, so unshakable is Misty Zeller's hope. And as unshakable as God's character is, as steadfast as, as is his faithfulness, so unshakable and steadfast is our hope in him. The suffering we encounter under the sovereign hand of God will have 
the very real possibility and effect of bearing us down. Of causing us to be bowed down to the point of breaking. And what do you do? You assess the ailment. You say to your soul, what is going on? You, you be forthright with the reminders and the results of your pain. You deal with it honestly. You acknowledge the theological implications of these things. You cannot divorce what you know of God from how you look at your suffering. You cannot divide those two. More and more as, as I read and as I grow and as God is gracious to teach me, I see that you really can't divide anything from your theology. I know that a lot of us get that up there, but as you process life, the stronger that you realize theology informs your response to everything, as a, in terms of, especially in terms of your relationship with God. It has its hands in everything. So after you assess your ailment, then you administer your antidote. You, you meditate on what you know to be true. What do you think? What do you feel? What do you know? And you let that knowledge inform your thoughts and your feelings. And then you praise the character of God as he's been revealed to in his word and, and in your life, in your past. You recognize his covenant love and you remember his compassions and you rejoice in his faithfulness and you finally see your hope buoyed back up in confidence as you find peace at the end of the matter. The zealers continue to go through their hardship. Things have not resolved. In fact, there are things that could conceivably go worse. They don't know if there's cancer. They don't know the degree to which their, their kids have, have been affected. They have at least five years before the doctors say that the, the mold stuff will, will stop to affect just their personality and, and their ability to cope with, with every, everyday life. You know, so she, she, she looks at her, at, um, at her three-year-old and she says, we don't even know what normal is. And it's going to be five years until we even find out what normal is for this child. So anyway, it's not done. But here, here's the end of one of their more recent writings. Our messy, broken, God-ordained lives have been filled with far more sorrow and suffering than I ever could have comprehended. And also far more goodness and beauty. He really is the same God today in every way as he has been to us on every one of our darkest days. He is not more God or more good than yesterday, just because we have seen him in new ways, but at the same time, I am grateful for this moment when we get to see yet another part of the Lord's immeasurable beauty. In the midst of suffering, recognizing God and his character changes everything because it gives you a right understanding and a right response. This, this relationship with God, though, and the amazing uplifting hope, it's really only available to, to God's children. Because the flip side of the hope, God promises all, all that list of, of wonderful things, those are promises to God's children. And so if, if you find yourself unable to, to claim Christ as Lord, if you haven't claimed Christ as Lord, 
and repented of your sins and accepted him as your savior and, and devoted your life to him as a disciple as he lays out here, then, then I'm sorry, I have no hope for you. Because all the hope is in Christ. So I urge you, because suffering comes. I exhort you because judgment comes. I beg of you that you would address the Lord. Repent of your sins. Be saved. Become his child. And lay hold of this hope. Lay hold of the word. Lay hold of the character of God as the one that bears you through all things in a way that nobody else can. We're going to sing a a couple of songs in in response, and and hopefully as we have considered God's character, it fuels your desire to sing. And after the songs, there there will be uh, some folks, I'll be at the front, there will be some folks over by their prayer room. If you want to talk through any of this, you want to talk through suffering in your life, how theology works with that, um, then please come, come and talk to us or those around you, we want to help you work through these things. This is not necessarily an easy fix or an easy pill to swallow or to apply, but it's very real and it's very feasible. So let's pray. Father, we give you all the praise. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We have no hope in and of the people around us. All our hope is in you. You are so good and kind to reveal yourself to us. You are so good and kind to draw us into a relationship, to offer forgiveness through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, to offer assurance through his resurrection from the dead. Lord, help us to to call to mind, to place back into our hearts what we know of you in the midst of suffering so that we can honor and glorify you, so we can have hope that does not disappoint and will not fail. And you get all the glory for it, Lord, because it's all you. It's all you're doing. We pray for good application in the days ahead, knowing that suffering will come, but that it's by your tender, caring, faithful, steadfast hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Thank you.